Thank you, John. Hi, everybody. Good morning. We're glad you're here. Look at that, clapping for announcements. Hey, uh, grab a Bible. Let's go to the book of Psalms, chapter 46. Good morning. Uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and let one of our ushers know. Uh, they are highly trained uh, martial artists disguised as Bible dispensers and uh, double as a security team. Uh, let one of our, I'm just kidding, let it, they do dispense Bibles, so let one of them know. Or if you'd like to follow along on the screens, you can do that. Uh, we are in a series of conversations about the rhythms of life. And so we've been talking about work and rest and celebration and lament. And the next couple are solitude uh, and community. And so we're going to start this morning in Psalm chapter 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. Now, in my, in my Bible, there's a little like italicized D that says there's a textual note, and I go down, and it says what should be written there is the word Selah. Now, we put it up here. Notice this word right at the bottom, S-E-L-A-H, Selah. This word is, is kind of an interesting word because um, we're not real clear on where the word come f- comes from or what it means, but our best guess is that it's actually a musical note that means to pause or to be quiet, to be still, to reflect on what it is that you just read or you had just sung. So there are these moments when you're declaring these things about who God is and then written in in between are these moments of just quiet or of stillness. These sacred moments of pause. The passage continues. Verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts His voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then what's the next word? Selah. A moment of pause. Of quiet. Of stillness. Where we reflect on what it is that we've just said or sung built in to the worship manual of the people of God are these moments where we stop and we quiet and we listen. Verse 8, Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations He has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What's the next word? Selah. A pause. We stop. We're still. We're quiet. Now, would you agree we're really good at this? 
You know? I mean, I love, I love our life. We're so connected to, to the point now where we never have to be bored. We never have to be quiet. We never have to have an undistracted, unamused moment. I love when two people are at a restaurant and they're so obviously on a date, both of them are playing on their phones. Not talking to each other, but just, right? Or, or I was at Disneyland and there's a mom there and she's obviously playing like Angry Birds or something on her iPad while her kids just kind of roam around by themselves. And you just go, okay, so maybe this isn't as easy for us as it seems. Built in to Jewish worship were these moments of pause, of stillness, of quiet, where you'd soak something in. Wouldn't you agree in human life there are moments when silence is only the only appropriate response? I mean, when our, when our first son was born, Nate, 22 hours of labor, and then an emergency C-section later, I'm upstairs with him while they're putting mom kind of back together. And, and he's laying there, and, and they, you know, they, they, no one told me how ugly they are when they come out, you know, no one warned me. So they'd kind of mopped him up a little bit and washed his little hair and give him a shot. And now he's in this kind of, like, bread warmer thing, you know. It's like he's in this tray with this heat lamp on him. And, and, and so I, I came up, and I, and I just whispered. He, he couldn't see me. I said, Nathaniel, and his whole body arcs as he tries to find my voice. And, and I knew he would recognize his mom's voice, but I knew he'd recognize mine. And I put my little, ha- I put my little hand, I put my hand <laughs> on his little tummy, and he reaches up and he grabs my finger with this little bitty hand. Now, I, I was 32, 29 of those years, of those 32 years had been spent as a bachelor, right? The three years of marriage had not eradicated the 29 years of bachelorness. But as I held my little boy's hand, I, there was a stillness and a quiet that was the only appropriate response, would you agree? There was something so profound in that moment. And on the other end of the spectrum, when we heard that our youngest child was going to have Down syndrome, as we've talked about so much, the day we found out, a friend of my wife's came running into our house, looked at her and said, it's not fair, grabbed her, hugged her. They wept for a while, and she didn't say another word for the next half hour. Sometimes silence is the only appropriate response. Built into Jewish worship were moments where you would pause, where you would grow still, where you would be quiet, and you would reflect on what it is that you just said, what it is that you had just sung. And we're not good at this. Next to walking by a cold stone store without going in, this is the hardest thing for me to do. <laughs> to be quiet, to be undistracted, to be unavailable to anybody else, to be fully present. And notice what, the, what this passage says we miss because we don't have those moments of pause, those moments of selah, those moments of quiet or stillness. God says, be still and know that I am God. Now, 
couple of things that, that aren't really apparent in English. The phrase, be still, doesn't mean stop moving. Like, you know how parents, you're in a movie theater, or you're with your kids in church, or they're in a place where they have to, like, actually behave. And, and there's the, be still, be quiet. You know, that it, it's not that that this phrase is talking about. In fact, the phrase, be still, means to go slack, to let drop, to become weak. It's used negatively all over the Old Testament. When somebody has a commitment they have made, but they let it go, the same word is used if they don't follow through with it. Or if somebody should be working hard and they don't, that same word is used. Here it's used positively. Find moments and places and spaces where you go slack, where you let go. Have you ever, have you ever been around a kid at an amusement park about four in the afternoon? They were there when the park opened, you know, like three, two or three years old, and it's just too much for their little bodies and souls and spirits. And if you were to pick them up, you would, they are dead weight. They are absolutely exhausted. And you, I mean, you're carrying literally. I mean, there's, they're not helping you. It, I mean, that is what it means to go slack. Or if you're like me and, and you've been preaching all, all morning and there's football on. I go slack right in the couch. You know what I'm saying? There's this, the command is to be weak. To drop, to let go, and know that he is God. Now, anytime you have two Hebrew commands next to each other, be still and know, it's called a a coordinate set of imperatives. I know you're dying to know this. But the emphasis is always on the second one. In other words, you be still in order to know that he is God. Let me say that a different way. What do we miss out on because we live lives of such distraction, of such busyness, of such stress? What do we miss out on? Well, I don't know about you, but when I'm absorbed fully in my own life, I get bigger, all my problems get bigger, the feeling I have that I have to solve all my own problems gets bigger, and my estimation of God just gets smaller in the process. And so the scriptures invite us into this posture Flop down, be weak, be still, say la, and know in order to know that he is God. It's almost like like right-sizing life. I get smaller in those moments, God gets bigger in those moments, and when that happens, what I'm wrestling with doesn't seem so massive. What do we miss because we live lives that are just so crazy and so noisy, and so distracted, we miss having a view of God that is large enough to handle our problems, that is large enough to handle us, our past, our present, or our future. Go to, the, go to Acts chapter 17, if you would. It's one of my favorite passages to remind myself, God's not lucky to have me. Every now and again, would you agree, we need to be reminded that there is a throne at the center of the universe and we are not on it? Wouldn't you agree? Or is that just me? Right? Every now and again, I have to be reminded in stillness and in quiet that I am not the author of my own life. 
that it's not all up to me to make life work, that my bucket list isn't necessarily God's bucket list for me. Every now and again, my agenda isn't his agenda. And because we live lives of such distraction and such noise, we've ceased being still and have moments of just pause, of quiet, of reflection. We get bigger, our problems get bigger, and our estimation of God gets smaller. Every now and again, the people of God need to just simply be reminded the whole story is not about us. Paul is speaking in a city called Athens. Athens in the first century wasn't a a military or economic power, but culturally Athens was significant. Greek art, Greek poetry, Greek philosophy, Greek mathematics, Greek rhetoric. I mean, all of that had been embraced by the Roman Empire. And there, particularly there, new compelling ideas were held like up in high regard. There were two competing schools of thought that dominated Athenian culture. Stoics and Epicureans debated each other all the time. And and they were very religious people. In fact, one ancient commentator commented on the fact that they had more statues, 10,000 statues, to gods and goddesses than they did people. They were incredibly religious, and they believed the gods actually needed them. The gods needed their worship, needed their temples, needed their service. Now into this, a guy named Paul walks in. He doesn't go throwing Bible verses at him, but instead, in a matter of four sentences, deconstructs entirely their view of the world. We begin in verse 22. Paul stood up, and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. In other words, in case we missed our, in case our 10,000 statues missed someone, we'll just cover our bases with a generic one. Paul says, so you are ignorant of the very thing that you say you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, this is where he goes crazy. And we're going to go over this a bunch, because you don't, really appreciate it yet. Verse 24. The God. I mean, just stop there. How many gods and goddesses do they have? Hundreds, if not thousands. So he just starts, the God, the one God, the real God, the only true and living God, the one God. That, if that's all he said, would have been crazy enough. But then he said, the God who made the world. Now, back then, I know this is crazy, but back then people actually thought the world was the result of chance and randomness. It's shocking. So Paul, in like his first, I mean, he's dropping bombs on their entire way of looking at the world. The God who made the world and correspondingly everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now the word Lord there means owner possessor, master. It's not like God wound up creation and then left. He's intimately involved and he owns everything. Okay, this is like his first sentence. The one God who made everything owns it all. And then, I love this line, 
and therefore does not live in temples built by human hands. Like your altars, your monuments, your statues, your temples can't contain the one God who made everything and who owns it all. Now, do you just get a glimpse of how subversive a sentence like that? See, we read it and go, yeah, well, yeah, of course. Back then, I mean, your jaw would have just been dropping. The one God who made everything, owns everything, and therefore doesn't live in your temples. And if that weren't enough, verse 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Now, the word for served, you're dying to know is the word therapeuso. What English word do you think we get from therapeuso? Therapeutic. The word means to aid someone's discomfort, to ease someone's suffering. And so Paul looks at them and he says, the one God who made everything owns it all, doesn't live in your temples, and doesn't receive therapy from you when you serve him. In other words, he's not lonely. He's not some cosmic ego that woke up one day and said, hey, you know, I really need a bunch of followers to make me feel better about myself. He wasn't lonely or depressed. Like, Jesus walked around like this, right? I mean, he would say to people, listen, if my disciples stop making noise, the rocks will begin to cry out in praise of me, right? God isn't hurting for followers. It's not like he's lucky to have us. God doesn't sit up there and say, hey, you have your choice of religion, so I'm glad you chose me, thanks. My name, he says, will be made great. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And, and so God, I mean, to a whole religious system that talks of the gods needing us, Paul says the one God who made everything and owns it all doesn't live in your temples and you don't give him therapy. You don't ease his discomfort. You don't give him benefit when you worship him. I mean, even in the Old Testament, don't turn there. I'm going to read Psalm 50 to you. We'll put it up on the screen. But this, this kind of thought was present from God himself. God had commanded all of these offerings to be made, but then the people thought he needed them. God said, verse 9, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. Every animal in the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects of the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. See, it's that God that Paul is revealing to the Greeks. The God who doesn't need us. The God who doesn't receive benefit from our service. I mean, and that's why it's so crazy that we go around thinking that God is oh so happy with our obedience. He's oh so happy when we throw a couple of bucks in the Washington Monument. He's oh so happy because we take some time to show up. As if, I mean, there was this image when I was in college and I, I, I was like a really kind of mediocre sort of follower of Jesus and somebody tried to guilt me into having time alone with Jesus by saying, think of it as a date and Jesus sits in a restaurant looking out the window waiting for you and he's sad when you don't show up and spend time with him. Now, there's a part of that that's like, okay, yeah, Jesus wants intimacy, that's awesome. 
But there's another part of that that makes Jesus seem like a jilted, like, boyfriend or girlfriend. I mean, something. I mean, you're just like, what? He's just, he's just sitting there lonely, looking out the window, forlorn. Oh, okay. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? There's part of that that's right, and part of that that makes Jesus seem really... Like he needs therapy. <laughs> right? I mean, and, and, and when Paul wants to talk about what we do for God, he uses a term that's translated worship. That means service. And the difference between therapy and worship is your orientation. Therapy is God exists for me. Worship is I exist for him. That's what he's... See, what Paul is destroying here it's not only Greek culture and religion, but he's destroying American therapeutic Christianity. That somehow God exists for us, he exists to make us better and happier, to give us more fulfillment, to bring about self-realization in our lives, to make us better spouses and better fathers and mothers and better children. you got to understand, Jesus isn't hurting for worship today. There are people walking dozens of miles under threat of persecution for the privilege of worshiping today. And when we sit in our chairs and have our nice, nice comfy chairs and have our kids taken care of and nice warm coffee for us, and we get ticked because, well, you know, it was just a little loud or the music was this or the talk was this, God Almighty doesn't sit there and give a rip about what you think. Because it wasn't for you. You're for him. And every now and again, the people of God need to be reminded that we exist for his purposes and not vice versa. He's not my cosmic guru, life coach, or motivational speaker. To say yes to Jesus is to abandon your bucket list and to embrace his. And what we do in American Christianity is we just present Jesus as the answer to your consumer desires. Looking for happiness? Go to Jesus. Looking for peace? Go to Jesus. And we'll throw in free Ginsu knives, too. You know? I mean, it's, he'll make you healthy. He'll make you wealthy. No, Jesus may do those things. But if you're not in it because you believe he's the treasure, following him is going to be very difficult for you. And so Paul speaks into this world that is very much like our own. The God who made everything, owns it all, and doesn't live in our temples or our churches. And he's not given therapy by our human hands as if he needed anything. In fact, he, gives, he himself gives everyone life. Does that include a lot? And breath, does that include a lot? And just in case that weren't all-encompassing enough, what's the last phrase? And everything else. Now, have you ever been around somebody who feels like God owes them? Or have you ever been somebody who feels like God owes them? See, when, here, when bad things happen to me, my first instinct is to say, but God, look at what all I do for you. It's like I got a list in my head of every good thing I've ever done and all the bad things I've never done. And I want to go, hey, God, look at this. If you want to go zap somebody, zap somebody who deserves it. I'm pretty good. I'm, one of, I'm on your team, dude. Come on. You ever have that conversation? 
oh, don't get all high and mighty on me. Maybe you're not as blatant about it, but I'm that ridiculous to go, well, God, look at all this stuff. And God will say to me very gently, okay, let's play that game. I will give you credit for every good thing you've done and every bad thing you've avoided. But then I get credit for life, breath, and everything else. So, the blood in your veins, I get credit for that. The genius of your circulatory system, I get credit for that. Muscles and neurons and nerves and skin and eyelashes, I get credit for all those. For the fact that your lungs exchange oxygen for carbon dioxide, I get credit for that. You don't even think about that. I get credit for the fact that you can use language, that you can smile, that you can smell, that you can taste, that you can see, that you can hear. I get credit for all of that. I get credit for sunshine. I get credit for ice cream. I get credit for flowers. I get credit for mountains. I get credit for forests. I get credit for beaches. I get credit for the ocean. Every cool animal you've ever seen is mine. I get credit for poetry and romance. What it's like to kiss somebody you love. I get credit for that. I get credit for the fact that your next thought, before you even think it, is known by me. I get credit. I get credit for the fact that you don't even know how it is that you learn to talk, and yet you're talking. Every single good thing you have ever enjoyed or participated in, I get credit for. Now who owes who? And I shut my Bible at that point and go do something else. <laughs> right? Paul is destroying Athenian thought and American thought. See, what we miss when there's no selah, when there's no stillness or quiet, is we miss knowing that he is God. Because as long as I'm stirring up my own agenda, trying to solve my own problems, I get bigger, and in my estimation, he gets smaller. Now, he doesn't get smaller, really. But I just carry the weight of the world in ways that I wouldn't if I really believed he was God and not me. Go if you would to the book of James. Every now and again, we just need to be reminded that we need to embrace our smallness. Embrace the stillness and the quiet that allows us to see our smallness. James chapter 4, verse 13. James doesn't mince a lot of words. He doesn't have a cute introduction. He just kind of starts pounding away. And, <laughs> and this one is very appropriate to me. Verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, in other places, our life is called a cloud, a vapor, a shadow, dew that's on the grass in the morning but disappears by the afternoon. How impressive is our 70 or 80 years? Not too much. Instead, verse 15, you ought to say, 
If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. Now, God isn't condemning planning or having plans. We're commanded to do that in other places. What he's condemning is the fact that you and I go through life entitled to the next day, entitled to years of health, entitled to all the success that we can dream up. You and I come through life with a sense of pride and entitlement, not gratitude. Now, this is me. I'm not talking to anybody else. And so I don't look in the future and go, God, if you allow me, then I'll do X, Y, and Z. I always just say, well, yeah, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And I have my bucket list, my personal mission statement. I've got my plans and my schemes and my strategies. And all of that, whether outright or not, is built on arrogance. I mean, to be honest, God could zap me right now. Would you agree? See, I never think of that. I don't don't think of, like, there's no promise I'll even be here in an hour. And by the way, dying during preaching would be pretty cool. Like, just a heart attack, keel over. (laughs) Talking about Jesus, boom, now I'm with him. That'd be awesome. The only other way I want to die involves my wife, and I'm not going to talk about that at all. (laughs) But how much, I mean, how much of our lives are really governed? I mean, when you deeply think about it, by nothing more than what I want. I mean, how very rarely is God even a factor in those sorts of conversations? For me. And so James speaks this word. You're a mist, you're a vapor, you're a cloud. You're here this morning, gone in the afternoon. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. And yet we spend our lives entitled. Every now and again, the people of God need to be reminded of the sacred pause where we grow still and quiet and we're reminded of how small we really are and how big our God really is. So I I grew up in Ohio, moved out, Met a guy named Eric Hurd uh, at EV Free Fullerton. He moved to Mariners and said, hey, why don't you come be a college pastor? College group of seven kids, the first meeting. Awesome. Kenton said, hey, dude, if, if you had 30 kids by the end of the first year, that'd be awesome. So I did what any college pastor should do. I started feeding them. <laughs> Every Sunday night, after our meeting, we'd go to In-N-Out. Every Thursday night, we would go to Del Taco. Places we did not have in Ohio. And the college group began to grow into like several hundred kids. Kenton, who was the senior pastor at Mariners, then and now, said, hey, something's happening here. You seem to be gifted. And so why don't we, why don't we have you teach one weekend in something called the Big Box? It was their sanctuary, their auditorium. I don't know, a couple thousand people. It was like going from AAA to the major leagues. But because I was new and unknown, I got stuck with New Year's weekend. <laughs> Nothing like preaching New Year's weekend. Which meant not, not many people would be there, and if I screwed up, it wouldn't hurt anybody too bad. So lots of praying. This was big. I'd never talked to a group that, that much before. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, I killed it. I killed it. 
it was like they'd never heard such preaching before. It was amazing. I mean, all this affirmation, I mean, you could just tell, da, 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 and I was just killing it. Now, between services, go to the restroom. This is relevant. <laughs> there are a couple of unwritten rules in the men's restroom, and men, you can affirm these. First one is this, in a row full of urinals, you never saddle up next to another guy if, there's a, if you can have one between you. That's kind of the rule, is you always have one between you. Okay, so if you got a whole row, and you, and you watch guys, one goes to one end, then the other goes to the other end, and then another comes in and goes one away here, and you only go right next to each other if that's all there is, okay? And the second unwritten rule is you never talk to each other. Okay, that's, that's it. So, I go into the restroom, I've got my microphone turned off, which is like rule number three for preachers. And I'm the only person in there. A dude comes in. Older guy, I still remember what he looks like, kind of frumpy guy, and, and he comes right next to me, right next to me. And if I wasn't killing it that weekend and so full of the Holy Ghost, I would have rebuked the man for standing right next to me. You don't, it's like, really? Really? He then begins to talk to me. And he says, he, leans, he looks over and he says, you did great today. You know, thanks, it's all, it's all him. You know, but inside, I'm, yeah, I'm killing it. And then he says, and then he says this, I'll never forget this. He says, you know what they do with um, Roman generals after a great victory? <laughs> Hello, non sequitur. What, what, I mean... What? We're in the, you're violating every unwritten boundary. And so we're standing there and he tells me this story. He says, they would throw for Roman generals, okay, who had won a great victory for Rome. They would throw them something called the triumph. A triumph was like a massive parade. The whole city would, would go out and, and the, the general would lead the triumph in a great, gold chariot and a victor's wreath on his head and a big white stallion and then his troops would come after him and then all the plunder taken from the enemy would come after them and then and then the literally the defeated masses come would come as slaves and so all of rome would gather then flower petals thrown out and the whole senate would show up and and honor the general he's telling me this And he said, this is, this is the part that is relevant. He said, and they would put a slave in that chariot whose sole job it was while the general was, was receiving all of this acclamation, the sole job of the slave was to whisper, this will fade throughout the whole parade. And then the guy leaves. He doesn't even wash his hands. <laughs> now, in all seriousness, it would not surprise me if I find out that guy's name was Gabriel. Because the moment when I discovered I had a gift for speaking to lots of people publicly, the moment when I was full of, this is awesome, and I'm awesome. 
to have God speak so directly to the idolatry in my heart. I have never forgotten that moment. And in those moments when I'm quiet and when I'm still, do you know what the Spirit of God says to me? This will pass, but the word of the Lord stands forever. In those moments, I get right-sized. And God gets put back on the throne. He's never left. But in my eyes, in the way that I live, I pretend as if he weren't there and I were there instead. And so we worship with moments of pause and stillness and quiet. But we live needing those same moments where we be still and we know that he is God. He's gotten bigger. We've gotten smaller. You will not be used greatly by God until you've learned the prayer of John the Baptist. May he increase and may I decrease. But if you get that, then God can do mighty things through you. So would you stand up with me for a moment and would you close your eyes? And it would seem a little silly, would you agree, to talk about stillness and quiet and not have a little bit of that ourselves? And so would you close your eyes? So if if I can see your eyes open, that means they're not closed. And, And can we just take a moment? And can we come before the Lord? And just admit all of the ways in which pride and arrogance and entitlement fuel our attitudes towards life and Him. And then would you pray and would you ask Him for moments to give you a hunger for moments of quiet and stillness so that you might know that He is God. So, Father, we pray that you would give us grace as we come to take the Lord's Supper this morning. God, we take this bread and this cup and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. We participate in his ongoing ministry. We anticipate his return. 
But bigger than all of that, God, we're reminded that the story of human history is so not about us. We're reminded that we're privileged to be your kids. That, that our next day is not entitled, but a gift. Our next breath is not an entitlement, but a gift. The ability we have to even make wealth is not an entitlement, but a gift. And so would you wake us up to the fact that our story isn't the most important story. There's a much bigger thing happening all around us. And would you allow us to hunger and to thirst for what is good and true and right and beautiful in the way that we live. And so we take this bread and we take this cup, Jesus, in full remembrance of you. No one here is deserving to come. Nobody. All alike, we have gone astray. And yet we come boasting in your grace and your mercy that has made a way for us to be made right with you. And so, Lord Jesus, we honor you. Holy Spirit, we honor you. And Father, we praise and honor you. So, brothers and sisters, Ethan's going to begin to sing. And when he does, we invite you, if you're a disciple of Jesus or want to be one, you'd come and take some bread and you dip it into the juice. And then whenever God would lead you, that you'd take the elements today with a view of allowing God to get larger and larger in your estimation and that we might be recaptured again into what he is up to beyond just blessing our own agendas. And so, Father, receive this, we pray. It's an act worthy of your name. We give you glory and honor. And all God's kids said, amen.